Hello, my name is Mark Dory and welcome to this updated episode of My Lead Story with Matthias Mora, an astronaut from the European Space Agency. We first spoke with Matthias back in March 2021 and shortly we'll play you that full interview where we talk in detail about his journey to space and the role that Leeds played in him becoming an astronaut. But I was privileged enough to speak again with Matthias with only a few weeks to go until he launches from the Kennedy Space Centre in Florida and I want to play you that interview before we hear the original episode. Thanks again for listening to My Leeds Story. Why not also check out our Forever Leeds podcast by searching Forever Leeds wherever you get your audio. It's so nice to speak with you again, um, and I appreciate, like I said, your your time this close to launch. So um, I just wonder, yeah, how's your preparation gone since we spoke back in March earlier this year? Yeah, I so it's like we trained quite a bit on um, like on the new spacecraft, on the Dragon capsule. So all this training is now completed. And here on the weekend, I will for the first time enter my new capsule. Uh, we will check out that all the interfaces, all the system work as uh, they are supposed to work. Um, the station training has been concluded two weeks ago. And so I think we all feel pretty well prepared. Um, yeah, and we can't wait to fly up into space that that that's great and how are you feeling you know like you said with only a couple of weeks to go uh how are you feeling now about the sort of mission and the launch in particular yeah they still keep us busy and so it's like even if it's only three weeks to go for me it feels like oh it's still such a long time out um obviously the days get shorter and the time will be there like almost tomorrow but i believe the real excitement will only kick in once i'm suiting up into my fancy new spacesuit and then uh, we climb into the Teslas and they will ride us out to the to the pad where I climb into my new rocket and yeah and then I think the adventure really starts the 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 spacesuit's incredible I uh, loved seeing the pictures uh, released uh, earlier this week um uh, have, how, how does it how does it fit <laughs> the spacesuit yeah, yeah it's a uh, you know it's um, SpaceX has designed this new spacesuit and it's not only good looking it's also functional um and yeah it's a compromise of of both like like good looking and being functional so um, um in the past spacesuits were a little bit more wider a little bit more uh, roomy inside um so yeah it's uh i like my spacesuit it's good and hopefully it protects me in, in the unlikely event that it needs to protect me Absolutely. And I think when we spoke last, you were talking about the excitement, particularly about the spacewalk. Is that something that still uh, for you is sort of the pinnacle of what what you want to do while you're up there on the ISS? Yes. You see that all the astronauts have kind of three dreams. The first dream is like to fly into space for the very first time. Um, The second dream that comes right afterwards is like leaving the space station and performing a spacewalk. And the third uh, dream is to walk on the moon. So um, I'm, I'm really happy that now dream number one for me is very close and becomes reality. And I'm even trained um, for dream number two. So if everything goes according to the plan, I might perform a spacewalk next year, April, in a Russian Orland spacesuit. And that will be a first, uh, first uh, for European astronaut on the International Space Station. We have never had European astronaut uh, in an Orland spacesuit so far. 
um, on the ISS. We had it before in the Mir station. So uh, <clears throat> that is definitely the, the icing on the cake for, for my space flight mission. Absolutely. And uh, looking ahead, you'll be there over Christmas. Um, any plans for Christmas yet? Do you know what's on the menu, Matthias? Um, well, I, I believe that the Christmas menu is a kind of a surprise. But um, yeah, the rest of the menu we have tested. Um, space food you can try here in the, in, in the food lab at NASA. And also I have some European um, space food that I will bring along and share with my colleagues. So I think the food topic is, is pretty well covered. That's great to hear. And I just wonder, I know that we've got only a couple of minutes left. So I just wonder, we spoke before about your time at Leeds and uh, as a community, we're so excited to see you go to space. I just wonder if you've got any message for that, that community of either students or uh, former students of the University of Leeds. The main message that I think I want to convey these days is like, like never stop being fascinated, um, never stop asking questions and um, live, your, live your dream. And now Captain Kirk will fly um, this month into space at the age of 90. And it all clearly also tells me you're never too old to live your dream. So Leeds was actually the beginning of my astronaut career. The path that led me to space was studying abroad. That was eye-opening. It was such an enriching experience. And my dream is to float into the cupola and to be there 90 minutes after my arrival and to watch down on our planet Earth and just to see the entire planet gliding by. Here at the University of Leeds, we have a shared commitment to work together to make a positive global impact. But for one former Leeds student, his influence is truly out of this world. In this special edition of My Leeds Story, Mark is in conversation with Matthias Maurer, an astronaut with the European Space Agency. They discuss Matthias's upcoming mission to the International Space Station, explore the impact that Leeds had on his journey to becoming an astronaut and reflect on the value of international collaboration. Matthias, I just want to start by thanking you so much for joining us this afternoon. It's a real pleasure to be able to speak with you, um, to reflect hopefully a little bit on your Leeds uh, story and talk about your um, career as well. But I just wonder if you could start by just really briefly introducing who you are and what you do. Yes. So my name is Matthias Maurer. I'm a, well, he's an astronaut currently in training for my very first spaceflight mission. I hope to fly in autumn 2021 to the International Space Station. Thanks, Matthias. And, and obviously a lot of young children would dream of becoming an astronaut and, and going to space. Was that how your uh, journey started in terms of space and, and wanting a passion from, from a young age to, to want to go into space? Actually not. I'm from an age where flying to space was something very special. Um, I mean, I could see on television how the very first West German Ulf Mebold um, flew to space. But for me, that was so far away. It was almost too big to be even part of my dream. So for me, it's actually a dream of an adult. It was exactly in 2008 when I came back home from work and I switched on TV and I saw on TV that ESA is looking for new astronauts. And I thought like, hang on, what does an, act an astronaut actually do in space? And uh, so, and then I thought it through and I figured out, okay, 
uh, astronauts today are scientists. They love technology because we ride on rockets to space and we need the best technology that's out there. We work in international teams and I've studied in several countries and I love this international cooperation. And uh, what the thrill, like the excitement, the adventure. Um, and all these four facts together, that's the job profile of an astronaut. And for me, it was after a few minutes was clear. I will apply and I, I hope that I will become an astronaut. Uh, that's, that's fantastic. And you, you spoke there about your background as a scientist and your current role. Uh, and you mentioned also you studied in different countries. I know you gained a doctorate in material science and engineering. And as a scientist, you've um, achieved national recognition for research before this transition to becoming an astronaut. But um, I, I just wonder if you could tell us why it's important uh, to, to have that scientific background uh, background and that um, and how that that helps you in your current role yeah well the, the very first astronauts that flew to space they were test pilots because at that time flying to space was the main challenge well nowadays we fly to space already like for almost 60 years um, and uh, well so flying to space unless it's a very new spacecraft it's not a big challenge uh, we fly to space to use microgravity to perform research research that we cannot do on the ground and so like when I'm six months in space, the flight up and down takes only one day at the beginning and one day at the end. But the, the major part of my mission is being in space and working as a scientist. Thanks, Matthias. And um, we, you, you mentioned briefly some of your many qualifications, but I just wonder if you could take us back to that time in 1993 where you spent a year studying material science and materials engineering in Leeds. Um, what took you to Leeds? And tell us a little bit about your, your memories of studying in Yorkshire. Well, yeah, actually, Leeds is the beginning of it all, I believe. Um, it's um, the year before coming to Leeds. I was traveling around Ireland uh, with my motorbike and uh, I thought like, wow, my English is not good enough. And then like as an engineer, I should speak proper English and English is so important. So I screened a little bit which universities in the UK or maybe even Ireland would be appropriate. And so I very quickly found out that Leeds is for me the best option. And that's why I applied to come over to study for a year material science. And being in Leeds, that was such an eye opening event for me. It's a uh, I lived in a house together with uh, three other um, British students, two Canadian students, and so I was fully immersed into the, the British language, the, uh, yeah, the English language, the British culture, and um, the student life there. So I studied material science while at the same time getting a full exposure to uh, a different culture, a different language, and it was so eye-opening, so enriching, that I thought like, wow, that's exactly the way uh, how people should study because you learn so much at the same time it's way more like fulfilling than studying back home and in the UK um, while studying there I learned about a new exchange program from my home university in Germany and that um, exchange program allowed me to continue straight from Leeds on to France and I studied one and a half years in France and then half a year in Spain and in the end I got a diploma from four different universities and so it's like I had the best of it all. So Leeds was actually the beginning of my astronaut career because I believe that this international um, training, that was actually the baseline for ESA to accept me. That's brilliant for us to hear you say that. And is it fair to say that your English accent now has a slight Yorkshire uh, twang to it? Do you, uh, did you pick up any Yorkshire words on, uh, during your time with us? 
Well, it's like, it's already 93, so it's a long time ago, but I still remember born and bred in, yes. <laughs> in Yorkshire. <laughs> um, but I loved the time in Leeds for all the live events, the concerts. I think that's such a brilliant place, uh, much better than we had in, in Germany. Oh, that's nice of you to say that. And uh, sort of following that up with another Leeds-related question, I don't know if you already know this, but you're not the first of Leeds alumnus to head into space. Uh, the late Piers Sellers, a renowned climate scientist, astronaut, and this is quite a long uh, a title here, but Deputy D uh, Director of the Sciences and Exploration Directorate and Acting Director of the Earth Sciences Division at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Centre. He received a, a doctorate in uh, biometeorology from the University of Leeds back in 1981. Um, so I just wonder, how does it feel to follow in the footsteps of astronauts like Piers? And what do you learn from their experience? Well, it's like, uh, um, I'm surprised. I didn't know this effect. But uh, on the other hand, I'm not surprised because Leeds is such a like such a renowned university. And um, I mean, people come to Leeds and um, a lot of scientists like uh, have studied or uh, like studied part of their career in Leeds. So um, yes, Piers actually he performed several spacewalks. He contributed actively in building up the space station. So when I'm flying now to the space station, which is already in space for like more than 20 years, I'm actually um, yeah taking the profit and the benefit of all my colleagues' work, um, like Piers for example in the past. And um, well, yeah, it's like the the astronauts. We all work together uh, and every little piece of work that we contribute will build the future for the next generation of astronauts. And uh, the way Pierce built the International Space Station, it's, uh, we are now in the preparation to build the next step, um, which is this, the flight towards the moon. So in a few years, we will see a small station being built that will fly around the moon and um, between 24 and 28, this will be built and from there, um, hopefully the first European will also then land on the moon, still in this decade. Absolutely. What an exciting prospect that will be as well. Um, thinking about your route towards becoming an astronaut, you sort of alluded to it already. It wasn't something in your mind as a child. But I know that it's not been straightforward and you've encountered a number of challenges and setbacks along the way. I just wondered what's kept you motivated during this, well, over a decade, I suppose, of, of preparing to become an astronaut. Yeah, that's true. It's like... For me, it's um, kind of a special challenge. It's been 13 years between uh, my application to become ESA astronaut and my space flight. And so uh, a long, long period and several ups and downs. So it all started during the astronaut selection process in 2008, 2009. It's like we had eight and a half thousand um, applications. And in the end, we had 10 persons who passed all tests. And the director general at that time said like, you 10, you could all fly to space, but unfortunately I only have six tickets and you, Matthias, you will not fly to space. So that was when you are so close and then the boss tells you, sorry, it's not your fault. It's uh, the system doesn't provide the logistic uh, for it. So that was a massive disappointment. But I thought like now being exposed to space for over a year in the selection process, I definitely wanted to be part of that. and. Um, so I joined ESA's team and I was so happy the first two years working there, knowing actually that I was not going to become an astronaut, but I could actively shape spaceflight missions by working from the European Astronaut Center. And working in this sector is so fascinating. And that, that was, I got so much positive energy. And then um, 
like in 2014, 2015, when my boss came to me and said like, oh, we got more tickets, uh, are you still interested? I thought like, oh, are you joking? It's like, obviously, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, it's, I think the lesson that I learned is um, if you really have a dream and you want to you wanna achieve something, just don't let the first obstacle stop you. Just keep on going. No, that's, that's really inspiring. And I guess your journey is living proof of that mindset as well. And coming on to your current mission, uh, last December, you were officially assigned to the International Space Station mission known as Cosmic Kiss. And you'll become the second ESA astronaut to fly under NASA's commercial crew program as hopefully part of SpaceX Crew 3. Um, just tell us about that mission and your roles. And I say roles because you'll have multiple roles to play within that team. Yes, that's correct. So the very first European astronaut who will fly on a commercial vehicle is my colleague Thomas Pesquet from France. He will launch on, well, it's foreseen for the 22nd of April, and I'm his backup. So in case something happens, I might need to fly earlier, but I'm pretty sure I will have to wait till October. And um, then I will be the second European who flies on a, on a SpaceX Dragon, and I will have a handover with Thomas. Uh, on the space station and Thomas he has already been on the station and he, by the time I arrive he will be the commander and that's for me actually a great help because he can help me to get familiar with the space station, familiar with all the systems and also getting a quick start into all the experiments. During my six months in space I will have to perform around 100 to 150 different experiments. Many of them have already been started years ago even Tim Peake, my British colleague, when he was on the space station, he started some of the experiments that are still ongoing because sometimes in life sciences you need a lot of test subjects and um, so it takes a few years until some, some experiments are completed. I will also have a lot of material science experiments on board of the station and there I will draw my, all the lessons that I learned in Leeds eh, in different universities. Oh, that's great. Like you said, you'll, you'll not only be doing research experiments, but you'll also be the subject of those research experiments as well. Um, are there any that are slightly concerning you or worrying you in terms of what you're going to have to do? Well, worrying, not really. But uh, I mean, there's stuff that I like to do and stuff that I like a little bit less, like, for example, drawing uh, blood samples and doing it on my own. It's kind of, it takes a little bit of... Uh, you say like effort and courage to put the needle in your arm and pulling all that blood out and I think like okay it's for science so I get over it it's not my favorite part. <laughs> and um, from a personal perspective what do you think will be the most challenging aspect of this trip you mentioned you're up there for for six months you said the the journey either way is only a day so what is it that um, you, you think you're going to have to rely on all that resilience for the most? So when we are selected, um, we are selected for long duration space flights and um, so the most important part that the psychologists look at candidates that apply to become an astronaut is um, the social competence to work in a team effectively. I mean six months being in space, there are moments when there's a lot of stress and you have people from different countries, different cultures, different languages. We have Russians on board, we have Americans, we have Canadians, Japanese, uh, Europeans from different countries. So it's um, the team effort that's, that's usually considered to be um, the most challenging part. But I'm very, very happy with my team. Um, I've met like all my crewmates from the Dragon. Uh, I have three, or well, 
between two and three Americans on board. It's not yet decided if there might be a Russian cosmonaut joining us. Um, and on board of the station, I have two uh, Russian cosmonaut colleagues and maybe another American. And so I'm pretty happy with the team. We all are good friends, good colleagues, and I think we will have a, a perfect time on board. The challenging part um, for the mission, I think, will be the spacewalks, because being outside in space is on one side the big dream of every astronaut, because you're out there, you have the best view ever, but you only have two to three millimeters of uh, polycarbonate um, between you and vacuum of space. Um, so, and it's a tough work being six hours in space, working there and being fully concentrated. And for me, there's the option that I might have an EVA either in the American spacesuit or, and that is still being a kind of discussed, to uh, perform it with Russian colleagues because the Russians will bring up a new module and on this module will be a new European robotic arm. And uh, so there's a chance for me also to work on the Russian side. You mentioned there the, the spacewalks, like you said, a dream for any any astronaut. Um, but thinking there about the complexity of some of the training you've had to do, and you mentioned international collaboration, I just wonder, um, yeah, tell us a bit about the training regime. How's that been? What surprised you the most? I uh, heard you talking about a story when you were training uh, with some Chinese astronauts and there was some confusion uh, before you entered the, the, the sea, uh, which made me laugh. But uh, essentially, I think what was really uh, interesting there was just the, the need for communication skills. And as you've already said, you've studied at universities across the world, and it feels like you've really prepared yourself to, to work effectively in an environment where there is international collaboration. Yes, that's true. It's, uh, um, communication is the most important aspect, and it's even if you speak the language properly, sometimes there are communication problems um, when you talk with the ground. For example, I had... Um, Another small problem, <laughs> let me phrase it this way, when I was uh, in the NEMO training, that was a, a training underwater, I lived there 16 days in a station 20 meters below the surface of the water uh, on the bottom of the sea, and it was a training provided by NASA. So we had a team in the station on the ground and we explored the bottom of the sea, which for us was the surface of Mars. And one day we thought like, okay, today's plan actually has some slack in there and let's optimize it. So we shifted around some activities and um, since the communication with the ground was a bit poor, um, they didn't follow up in time what our changes were. And we thought like we optimized our plan, but in the end they were so furious with us because they're like, you messed it all up. And it's like, it's, you didn't know all the constraints and boundary conditions and uh, please never ever again change a plan before you have our approval. <laughs> and, and that actually is it. It's, uh, we are in space. Um, seven astronauts but on the ground there are literally hundreds of people working for us and it's a big machinery and um, it's all been optimized and even as an astronaut in space you don't know all details and so you need to rely on the team and um, yeah that was my lesson learned to not try to optimize a plan without having like, mission control on board. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like very good uh, advice to take on board. Um, you, you mentioned already you'd be flying uh, in the Dragon, developed by SpaceX. I just wonder how you've been preparing specifically for the launch and uh, just some general thoughts on, obviously, the private funding of space exploration and how do you think that's going to change and shift and adapt in the future? Yeah, so far, um, all the astronauts have been flying to space either on the Space Shuttle or in the last 10 years on the Soyuz, on the Russian capsule. 
And um, so the Soyuz has been developed around 50 years ago and now having the Dragon, SpaceX, which is brand new. And if you look at the um, automobile, automobile industry and you compare, for example, a Volkswagen Beetle with a, an electric car of today, you can like immediately see that there's a huge development and the same development is now in, visible in these uh, vehicles that we fly to space with. So the SpaceX Dragon is more or less like um, a Tesla car on the inside. Everything is fully automated and it looks like uh, you fly the spacecraft using an iPad. Um, and uh, so it's in the Soyuz you have a lot of mechanical interactions. You need to do certain calculations by yourself and you need one and a half years of training to fly the Soyuz. For the Dragon it's more or less like plug and play. Um, you will see later this year there will be tourist flights where there are no professional astronauts on board. They fly around um, our planet in a Dragon capsule, fully controlled from mission control. For us, it's um, my mission when we fly to the ISS. I have a commander who is a very experienced test pilot. He actually is a test pilot for the F-35. Um, and so I, I'm very happy. I have a very experienced pilot on board who will manage to fly the Dragon safely to station, even if the computer takes most of it. But yeah, it's exciting times and uh, I'm very happy that the um, commercial industry is now picking up um, space development because we see massive advances in technology and that's, that's what we need. And I guess it would be remiss of me not to touch on um, the impact of COVID on your training and your preparations. Uh, obviously, I'm speaking to you here today from my own bedroom. Um, so, uh, yeah, just tell us how that's affected you over the last year and, and, and what impact that's had on, on the training regime. You speak from your bedroom uh, to my bedroom. <laughs> and you see that, uh, like, COVID is, uh, affects everyone the same. So, um, well, when I'm in training, I wear a mask and... Um, we also apply the standard um, precautions like wash the hands, sanitize everything, wear always a mask, keep social distancing. We have only a limited number of trainers with us because we want to have a, like a small number of people in the room just to make sure that uh, if somebody is infected that we don't have a super spreader event. Yeah, so uh, that affects us all. It also affects the preparation towards the launch. Um, in the past, we had two weeks of quarantine before a launch. Now it's more or less three weeks and even more restricted, uh, just to make sure that we keep uh, COVID on the planet and don't bring it to space, because uh, um, we don't have the resources to rescue somebody in space, uh, like an intensive care station, what we have here on the ground. So yeah, definitely it affected us all. It affected also the preparation of the mission, the building of the hardware. Um, the building of the rocket, everywhere, all the teams have been affected. But um, yeah, I believe we adapted and um, hopefully soon everyone will be vaccinated and then we uh, can return to a more normal state. Absolutely. Let's, let's hope that's the case. Um, uh, coming on then to your sort of role as an ambassador and someone that can inspire future generations as well. You mentioned your colleague Tim, Tim Peake uh, previously, who's obviously done an excellent job of, of doing that. Um, but, uh, you know, your role is to inspire future scientists. What tips would you give to students, perhaps even students that are studying at Leeds right now, uh, who are hoping to get into space exploration in the future? 
Well, I mean, ESA has currently an astronaut selection open, so that's the unique chance because in Europe it's not every four years like it is in NASA. It's uh, more like 10 to 15 years. So everyone who has the big space stream should apply now. It's the unique chance. But I wouldn't bet like all, all my chances on becoming an astronaut. There are a lot of fascinating jobs out there, being in science or being as an engineer or working in the space sector in general. So uh, uh, the path that led me to space was studying abroad. That was eye-opening. It was such an enriching experience. And, and that is actually what I want to share with all the students who are currently in Leeds. Um, if you have the chance, go abroad, study abroad. It's an interesting feeling being a foreigner <laughs> in a foreign culture and you learn a lot about a different country and you also learn a lot about yourself and your own country. Great. And we touched on it before, but um, in terms of the role that private industry is now playing in space exploration. But I just wonder if you could reflect and uh, help us dream a little bit about the future of uh, space flight. For instance, do you think in our lifetime we'll see a human land on Mars? Obviously, we've been watching with great interest the, uh, the feed that's come back with the Perseverance. Uh, or like you alluded to earlier, your focus is more on perhaps becoming the first European to, to land on the moon. Well, it's like I'm part of a team who's dreaming to become the first European on the moon. So Tim Peake also might be um, the first European on the moon or one of the first Europeans on the moon. And um, I think that's the, the, the chance for everyone who's out there who's studying now. It's like this generation or the next generation will fly to the moon for sure. And um, maybe even in the next 10, 20 years, people will fly to Mars. And I'm a big fan of Elon Musk. It's the, the founder of SpaceX. He has the great vision of flying to Mars. And uh, so he's pushing the envelope quite a bit. And um, he's building a huge new spacecraft, which is called the, the Starship. And um, so, and he has such a pace. And he says, like, he wants to fly actually in the next four or five years to Mars. Um, I think that's maybe a little bit too ambitious, but we need ambitious people to push the envelope. And um, even if it's not four to five years and only 10 years or 15 years, I'm very positive that I will see people land on Mars. And that's what we need. We need people on the ground to share their emotions, to share their dreams, to explore it. Because a human being on Mars can do in a few weeks that what um, a rover can, can do in 10 years or even more. You've developed the Cosmic KISS mission packs, taking inspiration from the Nebra Sky Disk. I just wonder, I know you were instrumental in developing that mission patch. Just tell us more about the inspiration behind that as well, if that's okay. Yes, um, so we fly to space and uh, in, in Europe it's very important that we share why we fly to space. And in the past, we always were instructed to say like every euro that we invest into space brings back uh, 1.4, 1.8 euros. So. This is economically correct, but I think it's absolutely not inspiring to talk about these numbers. <clears throat> and people, people actually, every one of us looks in the evening to the night sky and, and asks the same questions. And the questions are like, how did all this uh, come to being? What's the beginning of the universe? What, does, what are the driving forces? Is there life somewhere else in the universe? And how did life come to our planet Earth? And these questions were already asked thousands of years ago. And the proof of all this is the sky disk, the Nebra sky disk. Um, it's an artifact, um, an archaeological artifact that was found in East Germany several years ago. 
and it's around 4,000 years old and it's the first realistic uh, illustration of the night sky. And for me, that was such a, an inspiration to look at this sky disk and to see like, wow, the people 4,000 years ago, they actually felt exactly what we felt today when we look at the night sky. We want to understand, we want to know, and we are fascinated by the idea that there's life out there. And that is, I think, a more emotional and fascinating driver to inspire people for space than the economy. Absolutely. Uh, Matthias, I'm aware that our time's coming to an end. So um, if it's okay, I've got two questions that I wanted to ask you that my children, uh, Rupert age seven and Toby age five, have pitched for you. But before I do that, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us. Your story is one that's inspiring and one that we can't wait to share with the rest of our Leeds alumni community. So we're so thankful that you had a positive time in Leeds and we're rooting for you over the next few months as well. Yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, I think, that today is the beginning and I hope that we keep contact also during the spaceflight mission. So. so yeah, just as we finish, I'm aware you're incredibly busy, but I've got two questions for you. One from my son, Rupert. So his question is... Hi, my name's Rupert and I'm seven years old. My first question is, how do you get dressed in space? Well, you're floating and um, so basically it's like getting dressed when you are lying on your bed. So it's... It sounds complicated, but actually it's not so complicated. It, you, you adapt to it, but um, yeah, there's not a, a big difference, I would say. <laughs> How fast will your optic go on the way to the space station? Yeah, um, we need to fly very fast. It's 28,000 kilometers per hour. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have this in miles per hour, <laughs> but it's roughly 30 times the, the speed of a plane in, in the sky. Hi, I'm Toby and I'm five years old. What are you most looking forward to about going to space? Well, my favourite part is, and, and I've been dreaming about this for a long time, it's like I fly in the Dragon capsule and it's a small capsule and uh, we only have two small windows and I fly to, the spa to space and I want to see our planet. And flying at 28,000 kilometres per hour means that we have uh, uh, around the world trip every 90 minutes. So every 90 minutes I see a sunrise and a sunset. And my dream is to float into the cupola. That's the most favorite area on the space station. It's our big window uh, on the station. And to be there 90 minutes after my arrival and to watch down on our planet Earth and just to see the entire planet gliding by in one and a half hours. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I do really appreciate you taking the time. And I know you've got one of our university patches to, to join you on a, 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 as you go up there as well. So Yes, the University of Leeds patch will fly with me to space. That's, that's brilliant. Uh, Matthias, I yeah, wish you the best of luck for the rest of your training. Um, and again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And well, hello to everyone in Leeds. You've been listening to My Leeds Story, a podcast series brought to you by the alumni team at the University of Leeds. For more stories about our global Leeds community, why not visit our website alumni.leeds.ac.uk or join us on our social media at, at Leeds Alumni. And if you have a Leeds story that you'd like to share, email us at alumni at leeds.ac.uk.